Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Wednesday at 9 p.m. RPM's about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, New York City. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast for members of New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the, start, is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 95,000 members nationwide, and New York City DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. I'm Lisa Shi, and I use she, her pronouns. Last Tuesday, New York State held its second primary of the summer, and New York City voters are sending another socialist senator to Albany. DSA endorsed candidate Kristen Gonzalez trounced Elizabeth Crowley, winning the Democratic primary in the newly formed Senate District 59, which includes portions of Queens, Brooklyn, and Manhattan. We were at Kristen's victory party in Long Island City, and we'll share some sounds from the ground. And we are also joined live tonight by former city council candidate and News Guild of New York organizer, Brandon West. We'll talk to Brandon about the significance of Kristen's win and the results of two other Brooklyn Senate races, Jabari Brisport's run for re-election, and David Alexis's challenge of Senator Kevin Parker in Flatbush, Brooklyn. Jack Devine also speaks with Nick, a fellow PSC union member, about the year ahead for thousands of teachers organizing for a more just CUNY. And first, the headlines with Bernard Goyard. News. Kristen Gonzalez decisively won her primary in State Senate District 59 in Western Queens, Northern Brooklyn, and Kipps Bay in Manhattan beating centrist former city council member Elizabeth Crowley by more than 26 percentage points, despite Crowley outspending her. On election night, Gonzalez announced that her victory proved that socialism wins. State Senator Jabari Brisport in District 25, Bedsty, easily won re-election against a challenger backed by Mayor Eric Adams. Brisport earned 70% of the vote. NYC DSA-backed state Senate candidate David Alexis fell short in his bid to unseat incumbent state Senator Kevin Parker in District 21, Flatbush, finishing with 37% of the vote to Parker's 45%. A third candidate, Keegan Mays-Williams, played spoiler, earning 16% of the vote. In other state Senate primaries, a number of incumbent senators who faced moderate challenges backed by a Mayor Adams won re-election. State Senator Robert Jackson, in District 31 in the Upper Manhattan and the Bronx, beat Angel Vasquez, a former aide to a member of Albany's Independent Democratic Caucus, who was also backed by Congressmember Adriano Espeliat, District 13 Harlem, by 25 points. Gustavo Rivera, in District 33 in the Bronx, defeated his challenger, as did Andrew Gordones, in District 26 in South Brooklyn. 
Dan Goldman narrowly won the hotly contested primary for New York's 10th congressional district comprising of Park Slope and parts of Lower Manhattan, defeating Working Families Party-backed Assembly member Yulin Nu in District 35, Chinatown, by just 1,300 votes. Nu and two other progressive candidates, Congress member Mondaire Jones in District 17, Rockland County, and Council member Kalina Rivera from District 2, East Village, combined for 60% of the vote, leading to some speculation about whether Nu might mount a general election campaign against Goldman on the Working Families Party line. Congress member Jerry Nadler decisively defeated Congress member Carolyn Maloney in an upper Manhattan primary that pitted the two longtime incumbents against each other in the newly redrawn 12th Congressional District. Congress member Sean Patrick Maloney won the primary for District 17 in the Hudson Valley against his progressive challenger, State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. Meanwhile, Democrat Pat Ryan won a special election in Hudson Valley Congressional District 19, which Joe Biden narrowly won in 2020 in what some have suggested could be a bellwether for this fall's midterm elections. Ryan will hold office for four months, at which point he and his recent opponent, Mark Molinaro, will both be on the ballot again, this time competing in separate districts. In local news, the New York City Department of Education spent $90 million on air purifiers that do not use CDC-recommended air purification methods after a lobbying campaign by the company that makes the purifiers, according to a report from Gothamist. Governor Kathy Hochul has indicated that she supports a law passed by New York State Legislature to cap class sizes in city public schools, though is working out a deal with Mayor Adams, who opposes the bill before signing it. The New York Police Department overtime budget for uniformed officers has reached record highs, according to a report from State Comptroller Thomas DiNapoli. The Court of Appeals has selected Associate Judge Anthony Canataro to serve as Acting Chief Judge until the Governor appoints a permanent replacement for outgoing Judge Janet DeFiori. The decision to break with tradition and not select the Court's most senior member, in this case Jenny Rivera, likely stems from a desire to keep power in the hands of an emerging conservative bloc, of which DeFiore and Canataro are both members. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by New York City DSA Electoral Working Group covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. And it might be kind of hard to believe, but today is the last day of August and tomorrow, September. We are heading into the fall, which means the fall semester is starting. Students are heading back to college. Um, And our RPM's Jack Devine spoke with Nick, a fellow PSC union member, um, about the year ahead for thousands of teachers who are organizing and other faculty for a more just CUNY. Um, so if you're a regular listener of RPM, you know you're in for a treat. Um, Jack loves talking about labor, especially education labor. Um, and if you're not familiar, PSC um, stands for Professional Staff Congress, and it's the union representing 30,000 faculty and staff at CUNY. So here's that conversation with Jack and Nick. Yo, it's good New York. I'm here with a fellow PSC member, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. So Nick, what's the current balance of power at CUNY 
And how well organized is the PSC, which is the union um, for CUNY workers? Um, I think right now, um, you know, after kind of what you could say is that the failure of the passage of the New Deal for CUNY, um, I think that a lot of the PSC power balance is, is I really do think, trying to carve out a new road. Um, and I think that, you know, what was once historically, I think, very much reliant on legislators and, and lobbying legislators to get things done. I'm, I'm fairly hopeful that, you know, through that failure, something new will happen. But as far as like the balance of power within the union itself, um, you know, the union is very much um, driven by full-time faculty um, and, and full-time staff as well, obviously. But, uh, you know, full-time faculty is really at the driving wheel. The last president, Barbara Bowen, was a full-time English professor, and she was president for, um, I believe, about 20 years. The current uh, president, uh, James Davis, is a, or was, I suppose, is still uh, a full-time English professor from Brooklyn College, um, and a lot of the uh, con- a lot of the delegates within the delegate assembly, which is the ruling kind of legislative body of the union, um, is is full-time faculty. So I think a lot of adjuncts, part-timers, and, and especially what are called HEO, HEOs, the higher educational officers or, or staff members, people who work in admissions offices and and things like that um, feel that there needs to be a shift of power um, within the the construction of the bodies of of the the ruling bodies of the union to to make it more representative of of the membership. So you've you've got multiple challenges ahead. There was this push for the New Deal for CUNY that didn't get passed. There was an increase in funding, but it didn't nearly come close to mm-hmm. the demands for New Deal for CUNY for free tuition, for increase in adjunct pay, and for investments in the buildings and facilities across the board. And then you you also have this challenge within the union itself, because there's a, ba- there's a broader balance of power, like who holds power within the state? finance and real estate mm-hmm. capital who holds power within cuny itself is it the administrators is it the workers and it's and it's this balance that's always being struck but then you also have the union itself and as you're saying there's kind of the the balance of powers leans towards full-time faculty and how do we bring everyone together along a coherent set of demands that pushes forward empowerment for everyone within the union and so i think one proposal to do that is the vision for equity and job protection. So what is the vision for equity and job protection and what are the central demands in the proposal? Yeah, the, the vision for equity and job protection was something that was developed um, a couple years ago um, and has been under kind of various forms for the last um, couple years um, and is now you know, more or less cemented into uh, several central demands. Um, and, and the central idea about it, or central, you know, kind of guiding force is that it's really aiming to um, come at dismantling a kind of multi-tiered, multi-job system that exists, not just in CUNY, but at, at, at you know, every higher educational um, um, facility. Like every college has 
adjuncts as far as I know. Um, and there's always tiers that exist within that, right? And obviously I think we would all want to end the adjunct system, right? Have everyone have full-time jobs, equal benefits. Um, and this, this is approaching that goal through a couple different, a couple different ways. And it's trying to um, build a pathway towards full-time um, full, full-time faculty for, for all adjuncts who want a full-time job. Um, and so, you know, part of that is, is job security. So regular, regulating, you know, how, you know, year to year, semester to semester, um, how many classes you get and securing how many classes you get, because every semester, um, as you might know, uh, being a fellow uh, PSC member and graduate student, that, you know, every semester is a challenge. You know, you don't know really what you're going to get each semester, right? And so part of this is trying to adapt this thing that's called the Certificate of Continuous Employment. This is actually something that is for lecturers, so full-time lecturers, which is, you know, a grade below you know, a professorship. Um, and basically what the certificate is, is, is it's like tenure. It's a tenure-like structure that exists currently for lecturers, where after a certain amount of years, at least five, you can apply for this thing and you're kind of guaranteed to always have a contract. So adapting something like that for adjuncts to say, okay, adjuncts have a guarantee for this set amount every semester, every year. Because again, even though we have something, a four-year contract, a three-year contract, you know, with the winds of change, you know, there's currently a kind of a crisis, if you could call it that, of under-enrollment at some of the colleges. Um, classes are getting canceled. Some of them are not filling, while other schools are actually kind of desperate for adjuncts. Um, so it's this kind of, you know, these forces are always kind of churning around and, and adjuncts are at, you know, at the whim basically of semester by semester, what's happening with enrollment, departments, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so part of that, like I said, is that a pathword, a pathway to full-time uh, work um, through, you know, hiring within new full-time lines, um, things like that, workload uh, regulation, um, you know, again, every semester, you could be teaching three classes one semester and next semester say, oh, actually, you know, we don't have that much, so you only get two. Um, eliminating something called what's called like the 9-6 rule, which limits the amount of classes that adjuncts can actually teach. Um, you can only teach a certain amount of hours per uh, campus, um, nine credit hours on one campus and six on a second. So it really works out to at most four if you really work the system, but I think most do three classes across the whole system. And the big one is obviously salary, right? Um, we're asking for 13000 per course, um, which would equal out to about $78,000 per year if an adjunct taught a six-course load is what it's called. So three in the fall, three in the, in, in the spring. Um, and that's on the low end of what a full-time professor would be, but it's still miles above of what you are paid if you taught a three, three, you know, three in the fall, three in the spring as an adjunct currently. Um, and that's kind of our, our maximal demand as far as the salary right now is 13. And then, you know, lastly, benefits, equal benefits for adjuncts, obviously health stuff, but health insurance after retirement. 
you could be an adjunct for 20 years and you would be left more or less in the cold after you retired. Um, so, you know, th there's various parts of this and the whole central idea is to really, um, through these kind of demands, ratchet towards the elimination of the adjunct system, right? So regularizing these things and making basically adjuncts full timers without calling them full timers in a way. So that through pay, through benefits and through guaranteed work. So the system is currently based on this massive insecurity as you're talking about. And what this yeah. plan basically addresses is that insecurity. It's, it's talking about having people have real benefits of having a job. The amount of work that goes into being an adjunct is intense. It's overwhelming and people mm -hmm. deserve to have financial security. And so this is the pathway to do that. And it's a pathway to bring together the union on a set of proposals that can unite various layers of faculty and staff. And so I think that's, that's a challenge where it's, some people already have the security. So it's like, how can they stand in solidarity to be working with adjuncts to fight for their security as well? And so my last question for you is what will it ultimately take to win a strong contract for CUNY workers? Yeah, I think, you know, with something like this, right, I think firstly, um, adjuncts, you know, and, and I would say faculty and staff in general, but particularly part-time faculty and staff are particularly unorganized right now. Um, whether that is because they don't feel like they can be in the union, whether that's because they don't feel like they need to be in the union, and, and they might not even know, right? So I think number one is organizing the part-time faculty and staff. That's a huge step. And that requ that requires both a, you know, an organizing thrust to do that from the central union. It also requires something like a staff member. Um, the PSC is, is critically understaffed right now, I would say. Um, and, you know, the, we need to invest in staff members to help facilitate that organizing push that it would take to organize part-timers to do the things that need to be done. You know, when it comes to the new contract, which is expiring in the beginning of next year, January, February, you know, we have to take seriously um, uh, disruption in job actions that will get us what we need to, um, you know, what, what members need to live and continue doing this, right, outside of um, things like, uh, you know, tenure clocks or, or things like that, you know, what really would raise the bar not just the bread and butter stuff like we've been talking about, but the bargaining for the common good stuff, you know, working towards defunding the, um, uh, you know, getting the cops off of campus at CUNY, um, more inclusive hiring at CUNY and things like that, you know, are all part of this. And that requires the organization, of course, but also the will to do something bold and powerful and use our muscle to do something, right? And coordinating also with other public sector unions out there, whether that's, um, you know, other teachers in the high school systems, DC 37, and across the whole um, city, really using our, our labor and our time and our power to make these things happen. And I think we've seen that over the last couple of years, right? Like how much you know, teachers and public sector workers can win if they're willing to do what it takes. So basically, the, the need is to build organization, to build a sort of the relationships that make taking uh, 
action possible, withholding yeah. labor and and replicating the sort of the models that have worked successfully around the country. You're talking about organizing for the common good. We've seen this with CTU, with UTLA, mm -hmm. and they've won major demands and they've really changed the balance of power in their cities because the education system is so central to the city. Mm -hmm. And CUNY is at such a central uh, institution in New York that it would really, any sort of increase in organization, ability to act would really shift the balance of power here in the city. And I think importantly, you know, it's not just us. We also need politicians out there that are willing to stand up to the Taylor Law. We need them willing to stand up and support a public sector job action and stand up to the Taylor Law. Um, the, the law, for those who don't know, that prohibits public sector unions in New York from striking. So, so it's both. We need the organization, all of that. But we also really do need politicians that are willing to stand up to it and say that this is wrong and we need to get rid of it. Yeah, the terror law has to be overturned either through an action or through legislative means or, or both, hopefully coordinating together. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's a key struggle ahead. Well, uh, any final words uh, before we uh, part ways? Um, yeah, support everyone who you know who's in CUNY. There's hundreds of thousands of teachers, students, millions of graduates. And uh, just know that everyone at CUNY loves everyone in this city. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for those great final words. And we'll hope to, we'll keep our eye on this struggle. I, de I definitely will, uh, considering it is uh, very close to home and of personal interest to me. <laughs> but uh, I'm interested in it for more broad reasons. Um, but I just want to thank you for joining us and we'll hopefully have you back on the show sometime soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jack, for that interview. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, we're joined live by Brandon West, who has been on the show before, um, both as a city council candidate um, and as an organizer. Brandon, welcome back to RPM. Thank you. It's good to be back. And yeah, I actually saw you on election day. Uh, we were both picking up some materials uh, to do visibility for Jabari Brisport. Um, and so, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about your election day? What did you do? Uh, who did you talk to? Uh, did you find that people even knew it was election day? <laughs> I found a lot of people did not. Yeah, no, I had a busy election day, maybe not as busy as the June primary, but I my goal was to do three, to volunteer for three different races. Uh, so in the morning, I was helping Jabari. Um, and it was funny because I, I was at that point, I was getting millions of texts on like, help this shift, help that shift. But like Jabari just texted me. I was like, hey, can you come? So I was like, all right, six o'clock, boom. So I did that uh, shift. I didn't have time to, um, that's a work issue. So I wasn't able to do a shift for David Alexis, but I was able to do a shift for uh, Yulin Nu, who's in my you know personal district, so I felt a you know a connection there, and the folks reach out to me there too. So really, I had the most interactions with with voters uh, for uh, Jabari, where pretty much everyone already knew who Jabari was. I didn't give a single piece of lit out. Practically everyone knew uh, that he was running, and you know knew that they were going to vote. Uh, but this polling place barely even opened on time. They start they were putting signs out like an hour after it was supposed to be open. 
So I think there was a lack of general engagement in the election, despite the fact that people who were there knew what was going on, but they were just a small number of folks. And then by the time that I was in Park, so pretty much no one wanted to, to talk because everyone had already voted and gotten 25 mailers and were pretty fed up with it uh, because the congressional race, everyone was targeting the same people. Uh, so so I think in some ways, it's answers is both folks didn't know it was election and then the folks who did know it was election like were pretty much, you know, had their vote, had their choices already done and were also inundated with a lot of you know, outreach from different campaigns. Yeah, it definitely seemed that uh, people who were at polling locations where there was a more competitive congressional race, um, it, it's, I was at one where there was very, there wasn't, you know, it was in Hakeem Jeffries district um, and it was very, very, very low turnout. And I ended up talking to more people like who were coming up Franklin Ave going to a train station and, and letting them know that it was election day and, and definitely encountered a lot of people who didn't, um, who didn't know because it was the second time this, this happened, the second primary in one summer. Um, and yeah, and then so after that, I actually then did some visibility for Kristen Gonzalez, who won her race in uh, Queens, Brooklyn, and parts of Manhattan, um, and then went to her party on Long Island City. So we're going to hear some sounds from that party and what people were saying in the very exciting moment um, when her victory was announced. Liz Crawley, she called, she conceded. I know we're saving the speeches for a little later, but today we really proved that socialism wins. Anywhere, we are not going anywhere, and we will not stop until we see a socialist state across this city. co-chairs of the Queens branch of the Democratic Socialists of America, the Electoral Working Group. I want everyone to give yourselves a round of applause because this is about us. This is about you. It's about every single door that you knocked, every single phone call that you made, every text that you sent, every friend that you reached out to. It's all you. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. As we like to say, we make New York. This is ours. Being a movement candidate means rearranging your life to serve the people around you, subjecting yourself to immense scrutiny, of course, you saw, signing up for thousands and thousands of doors. Kristen did all of that with grace, with beauty, with love, and I'm so proud that you're going to be representing us. And I think it'd be appropriate for me to start with some numbers. And I want to begin by talking about how this weekend, uh, you know, one of our opponents said that this was a uh, race that we decided by 1%. Ah. <laughs> and just to talk about the magnitude of our win. We won Queens two to one. We won Brooklyn four to one. Socialist won Stytown in Manhattan by five points. I want us to appreciate what an amazing win this is for all of us and how the importance of this being a DSA campaign from the very beginning. Our goal is not just to elect good people. Our goal is to elect a good block of people that will work in lockstep in Albany to get transformational change done. Yeah. And Kristen's going to be a yeah. part of that. <laughs> it is a good evening. Yes. Yeah. I'm Lilia Salazar. I am Woo! a socialist. Yes. I represent uh, the 18th, great 18th district in the state senate. Woo um, and, uh, you know, I want to say, first and foremost, thank you to every single person here, especially those of you who 
put in the, the sweat equity and you volunteered so many hours of your time to make this victory happen. I want to be very clear. It would be completely impossible without you. Yeah, that's right. This movement is nothing without every single one of you. Never forget that. Because honestly, it's it's very important to celebrate these victories. We must, right? Yeah. This yeah. is the moment to yeah. celebrate, right? So Woo. I don't want to get too serious. But but I also want to say that um, we got to stay angry. Yeah. 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 We got to stay angry because there's a lot to be angry about, right? Yeah. And that is why Kristen ran okay so we're here in queens i'm going to talk about brooklyn a little yeah, bit yeah. Yeah. i think, we'll I think brooklyn it. earned it four to one yeah. someone's gonna pull me off the stage i don't care whatever but so so um i've had like the great honor of of representing some communities that are now in Senator Gonzalez. <laughs> I have the great honor of representing some of these communities in Greenpoint and Williamsburg and Los Flores for the past four years, almost four years. And um, and I want to say there are two super fun sites in Greenpoint. What that means, what that means is that Kristen running on climate justice yeah. is yeah. huge. Listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking about last week's election results with Brandon West, and you just heard some sound from Kristen Gonzalez's victory party in Long Island City. We had Kristen on RPM earlier this year um, to share her vision 
for a socialist New York City in New York State. Um, and we can only bring you that kind of content where you hear directly from candidates, their organizing vision. Um, it takes a movement to elect those kind of candidates. And as a listener-sponsored radio station, um, it takes a whole army of people, too, to keep us on air. So if you can give a little bit to keep WBA on the air, um, have so that we can keep bringing you content like we did with Kristen earlier this year, um, please give to the station. You can call 212-209-2950. Again, that number is 212-209-2950. Or you can go to WBAI.org. Please keep us on the air and we will be opening up the phone lines a little bit later in the show because we want to hear from you as well. Um, we are talking about election results with Brandon West. Brandon, um, any response to hearing um, the sounds from Kristen's party? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, just, it's pretty exciting. You know, I, I feel a lot of times the neg like negative talking points coming out of election cycle, unless you win everything, unless this is like 2018. You know, that kind of gets repeated over and over again in the news. But I think this, like, largely this is something to be really excited about, mainly because I think, one, geography matters. You know, I think the first Senate map, I think, was favorable. There were going to be a lot of new folks we were going to need to talk to, but they were folks who usually um, are responsive to our to our socialist message um, by name or not by name, you know. Um, and But then the shift, the maps changed again, and then there was even more favorable to us because these are people that we've already spoken to. These, these are places we've ran campaigns before, we've ran previous campaigns before, you know, and we have electeds. So I think this kind of really is a, underlines the importance of the bench getting built uh, because, you know, there was a lot of negative mail. You know, there was a ton of negative mail, but when you get, you know, if, if we get there first, and I think this is what their campaign did, it's like, we got there first. And so when you get, you have this image of this, this you know, this woman from the community, person of color, has done the work, and then you get this negative mailer saying that she, you know, hates puppies. You know, you're not going to really, like, you have to, the voter is going to have to, like, fight with that in their own heads. And in some ways, like you can be, we can beat the mail if we're out there with a good message early. You know, if we're not thinking about it and it comes out late and we're, you know, not really dotting our eyes and crossing our T's and yeah, you know, it could have an impact. But I think it shows that like we can be back against the type of campaign that they've been throwing at us. Yeah, and one thing that uh, you didn't hear in the clip, but was, you know, some of the co-chairs of DSA, uh, Queens DSA, you know, talking about recruiting Kristen and really, you know, bringing her in. And so that, you know, that early ground game of knowing that they wanted this candidate and getting out there early definitely played a huge part of that. Um, I know also a lot of people saying that, um, you know, there was a candidate running in Manhattan, Iapa, who didn't win, but having ground game um, once his ha election happened in June, having that spillover really helped in an area that people were maybe concerned that Manhattan wouldn't be as strong, but Kristen won Stytown. Um, so yeah, you could definitely see that movement building from from past campaigns. And what do you think are some of the lessons that DSA can learn, you know, beyond that um, from Kristen's race? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think, yeah, first point in terms of like geography, I think also how you bring your folks out, I think matters. I, I think this is clearly a low turnout cycle, and that was going to be the name of the game to begin with. But I, I think you know, with Kristen's win, you know, it shows that, like, you have to make sure that your folks come. And I think this is a lesson that we can learn from Sammy's race, where they had talked to way more people and gotten confirmations from voters 
way more than they actually got on election day. So it was really a matter of making sure that the folks that you talk to show up. Like it's one thing to be like, oh, well, I like this general type of uh, candidate, or I just you know just like a bad incumbent. It's another thing to like have that person have an affirmative vote for you and to show up, you know, and to do their homework and come come out on election day. You know, that's just a, a lot of asks. You know, and it's different than just having a pass saying that they support and then never coming back to them again. So I think you know we're still learning. You know, you know this is a movement that's you know growing quicker than anything I've seen politically in a long time. So, but we still have to do this work to get over the finish line, but we were able to do it in this race, you know, and I think that's also kind of connects a little bit to Dave Alexis's campaign because like I think they learned from the June cycle how to really do that, and I think they did a really great door to ballot campaign that you know really increased their odds and also did a lot of groundwork building in you know in that part of Brooklyn. Yeah, we'll definitely talk a little bit more about David's campaign as well. Um but before that kind of in between Flatbush and you know the Greenpoint area of North Brooklyn that Kristen is going to represent. Um we have the area represented by Jabari Brisport. Um, and, you know, that race, um, you're saying you got this text from Jabari to show up for visibility. You know, there was a lot of attention all of a sudden kind of focused on it towards the end. Um, Mayor Adams endorsed uh, the opponent for Jabari, Conrad Tillard, who um, there was a lot of also money. You're talking about negative mailers. I got one as a uh, constituent, um, you know, saying, warning me against Jabari socialism when it comes to housing. Um, and yeah, so, but, you know, at the end of the day, Jabari won pretty solidly um, in that race. It wasn't, at, you know, too close. Um, and actually every socialist um, who's currently in office now, um, both for the Senate and Assembly, won all their races. So, you know, what do you think Jabari's win says, you know, both for his area and the fact that all of the socialists, you know, are heading back to Albany this year or next year. Yeah. I mean, right, right. I mean, it's an incumbency is powerful and like building this bench, like we keep saying this phrase and talking about building bench, this matters. See, like having folks already there and being able to show for their work and also like relatively young, you know, have a mission, mission driven, like this is, gradual but it's really powerful picking up two to three seats every cycle really amplifies that and so jabari like the machine there clearly has everything out against jabari jabari's in the community like more is big on legislation but also uh being seen around in, in the neck of the, in the neighborhood and you know that that matters like people have seen that people know what jabari is about and they, sh they show up and vote. Like the, the machine couldn't find a viable candidate at all. And the person they put was very not viable and still threw tons of money at him anyway, which <laughs> kind of shows you their ideology. If they're someone who's very problematic, they're totally fine throwing money at um, and still did very poorly. Like you can't build an infrastructure around something that doesn't have built the work and we're building, we're doing the work in the district. So as long as we continue doing that, I think that shows that our incumbents can have a lot of political power in their communities, you know, but that I think also also means that, you know, uh, you have to do a lot of retail politics. And I think we always think about the ideology and the theory of change, but, you know, we got to show up at barbecues. You know, I think that's, this is a part of the, that that doesn't change. And I think you know, Jabari has been doing more of that. I think all of our electeds, you know, have to lean on that side of the work because that I think keeps us in that position of 
having that advantage, that incumbency advantage that is really felt by voters. Yeah, I had also done um, some visibility for Farah at the earlier primary, and most people were that I talked to were voting for her, and the only people that were really voting for her opponent said like, oh yeah, she likes use at my church, or I see her at church, you know, so it was very much about like seeing that the person... Um, but yeah, and then there was another candidate too that Eric Adams endorsed and the machine dumped a ton of money. You know, it was um, Elizabeth Crowley's race. So he lost that one as well. Um, so they do seem very interested in, in dumping a lot of money into candidates who don't have a really uh, record of winning. Um, the only victory though that Eric Adams supported was he did endorse Kevin Parker, um, who has been the state senator for Flatbush area for a long time. Um, David Alexis um, ran against him. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that race um, and your thoughts on the results there? Totally. You know, there's been Kevin Barker is this weird figure, uh, has a long track record of being very explosive and um, literally attacking people. Um, and, you know, has this weird position where they can kind of be on the seemingly on the good side on terms of energy issues because that's the committee that he chairs but then also obviously not care about moving the issues in the real way so when it when it comes election day because of all the retail politics kevin parker does which he's good at generally he's able to hold on to this seat so uh david alexis is i can't find i can't consider like a better candidate this person's like from the community incredible story it's father like everything's perfect you know in terms of um taking some, you know, someone who's interested in running and kind of running, going with that. And, you know, this was a strange race because a lot of people were thinking like, oh, there's no chance Kevin Parker's too powerful. Uh, Kevin Parker didn't really run a particularly good race. You know, he, he kind of phoned in a little bit, is clearly looking for other things. He ran for a controller. He's trying to find, you know, another future for himself politically. And, you know, David's campaign had a lot going against him, especially since there was now, um, a you know, quote unquote progressive candidate in the race um, who, wasn't going to be in that race originally, but then moved in and, um, you know, it was kind of essentially targeting the same voters with um, a slightly watered down version of our message, you know, and it was just going to make things a lot harder. But I think to the team's credit, David really focused on, you know, the, the thought about campaign, with, uh, which I mentioned before, which is kind of a labor strategy, which, is, which essentially you have folks in the community regularly interact with folks. You come back to the same people, you follow up with them, you make sure that they, you bring them to the polls at every little step, but instead of very passively engaging with people over a period of time, you engage with the same people and you have more direct, regular interactions with them. And that's usually the build out, you know, political power and having, you know, open-ended conversations with folks that kind of leads to like more powerful organizing, but can also be used in the electoral sense, which is what they largely did. And it shows, you know, I think they, they, ran in numbers that did really well with everything that was going against them. Ken Park had a lot of money. And I think it shows the infrastructure that we can kind of build out in an area that is new to us. Like there's a lot of folks who weren't were new to the campaign. And also, you know, they were getting pumped with tons of misinformation about, you know, some some legitimate concerns about community violence and violence in the community. That's all real, but also like a, a ton of misinformation about it. And, you know, we had to contend against that, you know, and and, you know, move, you know, navigate that at the same time. So I think we're in this interesting place where, so we have like progressives who, you know, ideologically are not, shouldn't be too far from us, but are in a weird position where they're not, you know, supportive of our candidate. And then we have like the actual work being 
done in the, in the community that was been pretty strong, and we have a very unpopular candidate who didn't break 50%. So I think the, the ground for a future race here is you know really ripe, um, and also an opportunity to kind of coalition build in a deeper way because the cycle is, was very hard. We forget how many things happened in this electoral cycle, um, and all those things made it harder for people to challenge incumbents. Like the same reason I said that being an incumbent was really helpful for Jabari, it was not helpful for us uh, in terms of David Alexis' campaign. But I think there's a lot to look positively on in this race. Yeah, and it's you know such an interesting you know the door to ballot um, strategy. Um, especially if you win a race too, because, you know, thinking about, oh, how do we organize once we win, you know, which is something people are talking about at Kristen's party, you know, like people are a block now of socialists and, you know, how do we, how do we organize? And I do just want to um, let our listeners know that we're going to open up our phone lines if they want to call in. Um, yeah, we would love to hear your thoughts about the results on election day. Did you even know it was election day with all the crazy stuff going on? Um, what issues matter to you? So you can call in at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. And so Brandon, while we're uh, waiting for our listeners to call in, you know, I do think another thing that I was thinking how cool it was is, you know, that Yapo was helped um, mobilize people, you know, even though he didn't win his race. Um, you know, we didn't hear from Tiffany Caban in the clip, but, you know, Tiffany was there at um, uh, at Kristen's party, you know, a city councilor um, for Astoria, and then seeing you show up for all these different races. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the even candidates who haven't won, um, but have been supported by DSA for the many have kind of been sharing and building um, over the last few years and just seems like you guys are always everywhere, like showing up to support each other. And, uh, you know, the comrade, it feels good, but it also seems very smart. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a lot to try, like we're all trying to share information and the, you know, understanding we have from doing these campaigns. It's, it's only so much institutional memory out there, you know? So yeah, we've all been really trying to work to help and support what we're all doing. I, I think particularly with this, both the SIOs, the city SIO, Socials in office for the city council and in the one for the state. People are coming in and out from the working groups and people have run races before. Like I'm part of the city SIO and I'm just been really trying to help folks there really like understand like how this works from just my experiences doing budget work, you know, and just figuring out how to, you know, navigate these coalitions, which are like our city stuff has been kind of messy, you know, in the last year because this has been a crazy last few years. So we're constantly like we're I'm on so many WhatsApp groups, you know, in terms of just folks talking, you know, I talked to the folks who uh, didn't, you know, we didn't win in our race, you know, the in 21, we just talk about politics all the time, just, you know, seeing what we're seeing and giving thoughts and ideas and, you know, helping each other f find new jobs and also like connect to any DSA stuff. You know, I think with, like, with volunteer work, the asks come very often, you know, and I think, I always love feeling, you know, fulfilling that because I know what we're trying to do and I feel it's really well appreciated. You know, a lot of times if you're doing volunteer work in spaces, you do all this work and you don't feel A, that what you're doing actually is going somewhere and B, that people actually appreciate what you're doing. And I think that's definitely the opposite with DSA. Um, and, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think we're building a bench. We're building a bench for people to consider running again. We're, we're building a bench for people who can, you know, do other organizing work. And I think that's 
you know, this is not a, us as individuals. You know, it's never has been about any of us for individuals, which I think is like something powerful because there's nothing really like that uh, in terms of the electoral space in this state. There just isn't. Yeah, and you know how quickly it's accelerated. You know, you could see how um, excited Julia was. You know, because just a couple of years ago, she was the only DSA um, senator, and so. I'm just letting our listeners, if you have any thoughts about this, we would love to hear from you. Um, If you want to call in, again, our number is 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We've got about five more minutes um, left, and we would love to hear from you all. Um, And yeah, so it's not just Kristen. Um, Oh, wait, we actually do have a caller on the line. Caller, you're live on WBAI. What is your question or comment? Well, I just got one comment to make. Um, I'm just thinking like, all right, you're talking about these races like they're over and there's still a general election to be won. And I think that their real goal, uh, the people who are throwing all this money into these uh, candidates is to try to shift things to the right, you know, uh, to the Republican side, because it's always been a Democratic town. So I I really think the ultimate goal is to turn it into a Republican town. That's really all I got to say. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, I think, and I think it's really real because the Republicans know that strategically they just co-opt the Democrats there in a better position. And now that they have a mayor who essentially is a Republican and is totally fine communicating with everyone that they're Republican, that's where that they're they're just really just putting a D in front of themselves and just pretending that right. you know they're this you know the, the middle you know. So I think this is what the we've learned from this cycle. You know that this is a strategy that they're going to use. So I think we just have to be really clear about you know offering something different. Like we can't let them tell us what the narrative is on public safety, especially when it, they're being incredibly disingenuous about a lot of how they're looking at the data and, and a lot of the reality of it. So, you know, I think this is just going to get harder as long as um, they've realized this is a way for them. Yeah. And I think we've shown that you need a really strong social, like a strong socialist, actually progressive message can win. You know, we learned that in Sarah Hanna's campaign and Kristen's campaign. So thank you so much for calling in. Um, we have another caller on the line. Caller, what is your question or comment? Hi, uh, do you guys regret not supporting Mondaire Jones because he was pushed out by uh, Sean Patrick Maloney, and Sean Patrick Maloney would have won the seat that Pat Ryan won, so Mondaire was pushed down to uh, lose to Dan Goldman. Do you regret not supporting an experienced guy because he Mondaire was so articulate, is so articulate. Brendan, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these all these. Little... The electoral endorsement process is one of the longest and I'd say democratic, even though it's challenging process. So the members, you know, have to make that decision. I mean, I, I will admit that Mondaire is a better than average legislator. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily a DSA legislator, but a good one. And I don't, I don't totally know what was in their minds in terms of thinking that this was going to work strategically for them. You know, I, and I, I, you know, I can't, I can't think for them, but you know, I think, it's it's a weird setup. Now we have potential. We now we do have to see what WFP does. But you know, one of the most left congressional districts having you know pretty much a Republican, mm-hmm. like a very moderate um, Democrat in control there. You know, I I think it's really hard to game out the, the strategic stuff when it happens a so quickly, and so you don't you know 
the players are moving around in their own best interest. They have the consultants telling them all that they're capable of winning when not all of that's true. And then we, we as an organization is trying to build a democratic process to figure out our endorsements. And I don't know if we can move quickly enough to deal with these things in the way that they played out this year. But I, you know, we also shouldn't be in a situation where we have those many candidates in a race where the electorate's to the left and someone throwing out four billion, like four million dollars uh, on it. Like that's just yeah. we have to be more strategic seems, than what happened. It just seems so unnecessary since Maloney was head of the uh, Democratic uh, committee that raised money, and he would have won in his own district. So I mean, pernicious Pelosi is behind a lot of this. I mean, it, we have to recognize that. But thanks for ask, answering my question. Bye. No, thank you. Yeah, the leadership, this is another thing which I, I struggle with progressives all the time. It's like no one wants to talk about the, the, what our leadership is and is not doing uh, in D.C. and how it's affecting us. You know, it's just like people don't want to talk about it. It's like, hey, this is actually really problematic. So I think you bring up a good point. Yeah, well, we will hold on to the fact that there is a corner of New York City that is now represented by socialists from city council all the way up to Congress. Um, Brandon, thank you so much. It's always so great to hear your perspective as a former candidate, as somebody who has been organizing in different areas for so long. Um, any final thoughts for our listeners tonight or ways people can maybe get involved in this kind of organizing? You know, I think electoral working group, you know, very important. We're going into the city council races, you know, support our slate of uh, folks who are running again. We're going to, they're going to need your money. It's still matching, but it's hard to run an office and run a race. So like, if you want to volunteer, help Tiffany to help Alexa, help our folks, you know, please do. It's super important. And yeah, keep the faith, but you know, things are looking good and we can only get further if we build together. So I hope to see you out there in some of those fundraisers for council folks very soon. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Um, really encourage everybody to check out our simple cast for past episodes with Brandon, past episodes with Kristen, um, with David as well. Um, you've been listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. And you can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. I'm Lee Zishi. Have a great night, New York City. We'll catch you next week. Bye.